episode 65 with author and educator Rivan Fouché. Welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I'm your host, Dario Calmis, an artist, writer, brand consultant, and generally curious fellow. And each week we bring you a conversation from the pool of Black genius to inspire, engage, and help you unleash your own imagination. Today's episode is with author and educator Rivan Fouché. Currently serving double duty as a director at the National Science Foundation, as well as teaching at Purdue University, his work explores the intersectionality between cultural representation, racial identification, and technological design. Born and raised in Chicago, Rayvon always had a deep interest in the confluence of science, technology, and sport. Initially studying to become a physician at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, it took failing an organic chemistry test that caused him to question, how do we even come to know what we know? Why are we sure about what we're sure about? However, his interests didn't purely lie within the classroom. An avid cyclist and an elite athlete himself, Rayvon competed in the 1992 Olympic trials shortly after graduating. But in his own words, he was good enough to know how far he was from great. And so he doubled down on his studies, earning a master's and PhD in science and technology studies from Cornell University. Alongside his current duties at the National Science Foundation's Social and Economic Sciences Division and the American Studies Department at Purdue, Rivon is a principal investigator of the Disco Network, a team of researchers, artists, technologists, policymakers, and practitioners that challenge digital, social, and racial inequities. He's also the author of two books, Game Changer, The Techno-Scientific Revolution in Sports, and Black Inventors in the Age of Segregation, which can be found in the show notes. In today's episode, Rivan provides us with a peek into the locker room, revealing how athletic teams use biometric data to craft game day strategy. He also shares the drawbacks of using technology and artificial intelligence, not only on the playing field, but in the courtroom as well. He also shines a light on the importance of creating pathways for black and brown individuals to gain access to research funding and why our future depends on it. Let us know some of your favorite moments over on Instagram and Twitter at Black Imagination. To view this episode and others, head over to our YouTube channel, The Institute of Black Imagination. For this and more content, visit us over on IBI Digital at blackimagination.com. And without further ado, the insightful Rayvon Fouché. Okay, Mr. Rayvon Fouché, welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. It's such a pleasure to have you here. It's so great to be with you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> of course, a pleasure. So, man, you have such an incredible body of work from, you know, exploring, you know, technology and sports to 
Black inventors and being a professor and working at the National Science Foundation. I mean, this is a lot to cover. But before we dive into that, who would you like to dedicate today's conversation to? Oh, that's a big question. Who would I like to dedicate it to? Uh, maybe I should. I can give it three people. Is that okay? Can I dedicate it? To, can I do a trifecta of dedications? There's no such things as rules on the Institute of Black Imagination. Spectacular. Innovate in real time. <laughs> so, so one of the things we're going to talk about is sport, and so in a traditional sporting effort, I'm going to dedicate one dedication is to my mother. Marilyn Fouché, uh, uh, you know, thanks, mom. So much of what I am and wh- what I do is connected to uh, my mother, a, a strong black woman who is tough in all the right ways, generous in all the white right ways, and loving all the right ways. So, so thank you to mother. Um, uh, the other person I'll, I'll dedicate it to is um, a person. I'll just I'll just name him him Stephen. Uh, He's no longer with us. He was a, a friend, one of my mother's friend's sons. And he was one of the few people who was a, a graduate student when I was in high school and going to get a PhD. And he was one of the few Black people I had actually interacted with and, and spoke with who was actually on the pathway to get a PhD. He was at the University of Chicago. And that one person just really made it possible and real. And I think we all have these people that we meet that all of a sudden you think, what is this thing? Is it possible? And then you see someone who looks like you, is familiar to you, lives, comes from where you come from, and you go, wow, that's possible. So so mm. that that's the other one. And then the last one is to my son, who's a, a sophomore in college. And Probably so many of the projects that I've, I've worked on in my life have connection to him. Uh, I talk with him about all kinds of things, from sneakers to sports to the weather. Uh, and it just always kind of reminds me of the magical kind of creativity of youth. Um, I'm my middle age, old age now, but I don't want to give up that youthful energy and excitement. And, and part of it is also about the excitement and belief in the next generation. Um, the next generation is way smarter, way more creative, way more energetic than I could ever be. And they will inherit the future. And, if, and hopefully we'll leave some really good, I don't know, crumb, breadcrumbs for them to follow. And that will let them create the next evolution of the world. So that's my, my three shout outs of sword or dedication so so thanks for giving me the space of course and what's your son's name eads eads amazing yes. love that name okay so this is to marilyn this is to m steven yes. and to eads all right welcome into the room um you know it's it's interesting i wanted to i want to start with sports because we never ever ever talk about 
sports. <laughs> or, I, we haven't we haven't spoken about sports much here at the IBI. But I mean, obviously, right as our own experience, you know, and the type of prowess that we have on the field, that is a really great place to start. But your interest is really in the technology portion or the ways in which technology plays or co-creates with the act of sport. So, and, and you, you've also said that technology has influenced sports from the beginning. So could you just double tap on that? Yeah. So my interest in sports is also connected to my interest in blackness, but I'll begin with uh, this conversation about just generally about sport and that I'm interested in the ways in which technology influences everything we do in our everyday life. And I'm fascinated in, about the places and spaces where people don't want to acknowledge how technology influences what we do. Mm. And sport is one of those few spaces. We want to cheer and champion the great athletic performances, but we don't want to talk about the doctors, the physicians, the scientists, the engineers, the designers, all the creative people that make all the equipment, the shoes, the gear, the the socks, the balls, all the things that all the infrastructure elements of sport. So I, I'm I'm a big supporter of the idea that if it was if you could run faster without shoes, we would see athletes running barefoot. If you could run if you can compete better naked, everyone would be competing naked. Uh, it's all about performance, and the technology shapes the games in ways we want. Often, we don't want to believe. We want to believe in the narrative of the human athletic ability. Human athletic ability, but actually, it's gotten to the point where, um, in many ways, the technology is a key factor in shaping the outcome of sporting competitions. And you said that it's, it's influenced it from the beginning. So what are those elements? Take, take us back. When did tech enter sport? Uh, um, I think the moment you had two people competing against each other and trying to figure out who will win. And how do you get an advantage? And whether you're eating this group of berries or the other group of berries or these mushrooms or not these mushrooms, um, there are, are things that allow you to, to compete. Um, so mm. uh, the idea of enhancing your body through technology or anything to allow you to improve is inherently the, the beginning of sporting competitions. Because when, you, when someone realized that their physical body was not capable of beating the other, then maybe you need to find advantage. Mm. And, and and technology and I have a very kind of old school understanding of technology not not a contemporary understanding of technology technology I think about is artifacts practices and knowledge so anything material that you allows you to uh, influence the outcome of something you're trying to shape is a technology mm. Okay, we can we can we could circle back on that, but there's something you said earlier about, you know, sports and blackness. Let's talk yes. about that second half of interest. Yeah, so I think part of what I'm interested in is this tension around the perception of black athletic prowess and and how that should supersede everything. Mm. So that 
they're great black athletes, but what does it mean to ask them to perform at their highest level? And we have these narratives and assumptions about black athletic capability. So black athletes are better. And, and part of what I, uh, one of the examples I think about is um, Kenyan distance runners. Mm-hmm. There's a moment in the recent past where this idea that there is something magical about Kenya, um, parts of Africa that produced the greatest distance runners of all time. <laughs> and then in the last five or six years, we realize as one after the other gets busted for using performance enhancing substances or doping, you, it's coming to realize that, well, maybe it was not the genetic blackness <laughs> that, that there, there are great black athletes, but maybe it was just the drugs and our narratives and beliefs in there's the magical black athlete or, you know, the magical Negro, the, uh, for me, the magical athletic Negro all of a sudden can transcend all the other things that people are using to augment their performances. So I'm interested in this tension around black athletic ability and people's perceptions of black athleticism that uh, I do think there's something interesting about black athleticism, but I'm interested in the ways in which it, it gets reconjured, reconstituted through athletic performances. And, and so I'm intrigued with things like black history month sneakers or black history month additions to heighten our understanding of blackness and athletic performance but a sense it's just once again commodifying black bodies to be packaged and sold in whether they be sporting in a sporting context uh and in any kind of context to sell and um move black bodies so i i mean that's kind of a rambling statement about it but i'm intrigued with the con- context of what it means to be a black athlete in these moments and times historically in, in the contemporary moment um and what does it mean to own one's body and one's athletic performances? Mm, you know that. F- thank you for sharing and and thinking about these these athletes, these Kenyan long distance runners. It's interesting because what I think it does, or what it opens up, is even the inherent anti blackness in the myth of the magical Negro, right? Like, yeah. you know, so for these, because there is this designed cultural image of the quote-unquote magical Negro, right? Um, yeah. It actually, one, robs um, athletes um, of the intense, you know, struggle, rigor, technique that it takes to perform at the highest level, right? It says, actually, no, you just have some innate ability, right? Like you you didn't work yeah. hard for this. So it robs yeah. them of that. But then there's like also this kind of anti-black intellectualism at play as well, which because we have created this myth or because this myth has been created, it also says like, oh, you're also not smart enough or like you don't have access to things that you would use or take to enhance your performance. Right. So it's saying like, mm-hmm. oh no, you couldn't possibly have access to or be thinking about using things that would allow you to actually win. So it's kind of a very interesting space. 
Yeah, no, I think you've you hit it right on the nail, right? That there's this tension between what it means to be an athletic, a black athlete is that, um, yes, you, you've heard the narratives that, well, he's just so athletic as opposed yeah. to choose your other non-black athlete who's a hardworking and who succeeded through intelligence and, and their, their mind. Whereas, uh, you know, I think the black athletes are just as hardworking, if not more. And so there's not a narrative about the reason why black athletes succeed is they just work harder than everyone else, <laughs> which uh, I, I think I'm definitely on that side. And maybe the, they're succeeding also because they're just smarter than everyone else. So I, I think this is the tensions that, you know, our, our race society doesn't want to embrace, doesn't want to embrace that the, the reason why black athletes potentially are dominating sports is they're just, they work harder and they're smarter than everyone else. <laughs> Awkward. Um, you know, I, I, but I, I love this idea also about um, the ways in which from the very beginning, technology um, has been a part of, of sport. Um, and I think it begs to question, what is the difference or what is that line between like, getting an edge and cheating? Oh, that's a great question because the line is wide at times. It's narrow at times. It's culturally rooted. It's historically rooted. It, It depends on the moment and place. And I think used to, to use an overly academic explanation. I think the line is crossed when it, the technology reveals itself as no longer being a benign component of the game. And so what I mean by that is that when you watch athletes compete and you see one athlete succeeding, another one struggling, and there's this back and forth. And then all of a sudden, when you see one athlete who is potentially struggling use a new piece of equipment, whether it be shoes, whether it be swimsuits, whether it be a glove or ski or something that they didn't have before, and all of a sudden, their performance jumps substantially. Mm -hmm. And they go from being okay, decent, or mediocre to a champion. And that's when people throw up their hands and go, whoa, you've crossed the line. That all of a sudden, it's allowed an average athlete to be a champion. And we don't want to upset this idea of human meritocracy, that there's something inherent about bodies, that my Mm -hmm. body has certain capabilities and your body has certain capabilities, and we'd like it to compete equally. But when you add something to your body that allows you to outcompete my body, that's when the line is crossed. And, And it's much messier than I explained it. But it it does happen. And I think that's the moment where the moments I find are really exciting when all of a sudden everyone thinks everything is okay. This technology is not that big a deal. And then it reshapes the sport in the future. And then there's a question, should we keep this technology or should we remove it? And that's where a lot Mm. of tension comes from. 
So you're saying essentially is if I'm going to cheat, I should cheat gradually. Yes. Or you should <laughs> cheat with things. I would say you should cheat with things that aren't very obvious. <laughs> because for okay. instance, you know, there's a moment in, in, in swimming where all of a sudden athletes went from wearing, you know, at least male athletes, you know, small little bikini briefs to full body wetsuits pretty much that allowed them to float higher in water and swim more efficiently through the water. It's hard to ignore the, that fact when you go from mm. small little bikini briefs to full body covering black suits and you're swimming exceedingly faster. And, and so it got to the point in, you know, at one point in the past where the, it was very clear, it, the conversation moved from how much training someone was involved in, their arm length, their body length, to straight up what suit was someone wearing because that was the fastest suit and that was going to change the competition. And the same things happened recently with, with shoots. So Nike came, has come out with some very, very, very fast marathon distance running shoes, which are clearly faster than the others. And from the elite level to the middling distance runner, has made everyone run substantially faster. And so the question is, what's do the, we what, keep what's these the, What's the shoe? Sorry, I'm sorry. What's well, the shoe? Because I the, need the shoe. Vaporfly <laughs> next percents. So there's a, there's a series of iterations of them um, that they have proven to shave seconds, if not more, off um, running times and for miles. So, and they're a proven weapon. Okay, well, we should also put in a disclaimer that this is not an endorsement for um, Nike. Um, they have not given us any money for this, um, but we should also send them a clip, so maybe they should in the future. Um, <laughs> but, like, you know, so you're telling me that my boy LeBron yes. is somehow surrounded by a series of mechanisms and technologies that allow him to be LeBron. And without him, without them, what does that mean? Yeah. With, I think the thing is, well, I think we think about sport as being athletes come to the sporting competition just having a hearty breakfast and a few calisthenics and they're ready to go. But, but no, LeBron doesn't come to that. I mean, he has a whole team uh, of people working to maintain his body, from nutritionists to physiologists. Um, you know, I, I think he was talking about recently his foot doctor is the LeBron of foot doctors. So you have, he has people around him. He has access to the highest level of technology, medical and otherwise, to allow him to perform at the highest level. And with that capability, that allows these athletes to succeed. And, and yes, there are athletes like LeBron who come to the table with a, a special set of genetic capabilities, along with motivation, energy, and drive. And those produce great athletes. But 
it's it's a lot easier to make athletes really great if you produce systems and environments that allow them to succeed. Mm. And so this is for me the troubling aspect of what's happening in at least in the youth athletics is the idea is that if we can get the right bodies in the right place and train them at a younger age, we can produce great athletes. Mm. But it dismisses all the realities of life, right? So what does it mean to be a 13-year-old athlete? Um, family, friends, video games, TikTok, all the things that influence how you live and exist in the world. We can't cut people off from human relationships and turn them into robotic athletes. Though some would like to. Well, you know, it's interesting because as you were speaking about you know, this role that technology has kind of always played <clears throat> within the realm of sports, in a way it makes me see or it changes my lens on, you know, athletics um, and its relationship to technology. Because in many ways on the tech side, right, when we're talking about AR, VR, AI even, um, and even iPhones, right? Or I shouldn't say iPhones smartphones, um, we talk about this idea of singularity, right? We talk about this idea of emerging um, and that many times in thinking about, you know, our near future, that the future of humanity will be this merging of technology and our physical bodies. But it sounds like that's something that's been happening in sport for quite a while. Yeah, I think definitely. Um, so I'm, uh, I definitely subscribe to the idea that athletes are, in a sense, cyborgs, that yeah. it's emerging a physical ability with the existing technologies to allow them to perform. And as we're doing more research and study on biometric data, and we're pulling that data from athletic bodies, we are learning more and more about what their capabilities are. Uh, so there are companies that are tracking athletes to understand in combination with their biometric and social data to know when they're, they'll be at the best moment to, do, to perform at their height, highest. So you can imagine if you have a year or plus of biometric data about athletes, but also the social data about knowing when they're feeling good, when they're feeling bad, and their other relationships and can determine these are the conditions under which you seem to perform the best and can model that and can predict that. So mm. that's a powerful tool. I wonder if they'll connect that to like, okay, Cupid. Like it's like, actually you perform better <laughs> when you are on the rebound. <laughs> no pun intended. You know, but, Let me stop. I'm so no. messy. <laughs> But, but I think that's part of the deal, right? Is like, what are the, not only, because I think that they would, this, they would say that we understand the, the physiological conditions that produce athletic success. We haven't done so good with the social, emotional, cultural conditions that produce ab, ab, athletic success. So, you know, the question is, is, isn't on the rebound, but you're also in an environment where you feel loved and cared for, you know? Mm. So if you're on the rebound, you go home. And, and so those are the kind of conversations that what puts you in the right mental space to succeed. Mm, that is, so, I love that. What puts you in the right mental space to succeed? Like now, as we're having this conversation, obviously I'm con 
already imagining a world where like one's bio data, right, or biodata is determining whether or not you get to show up in space, right? Like perhaps there's a, a swab, right? I don't know. Before you walk into a stadium, you're like, mm, you're you're not in the right place for this. <laughs> you're not in the right mental space to be here, okay. right, in this moment. But then also thinking about the ways in which, you know, via wearables, via like, you know, the smartwatches, you know, the aura ring, the ways in which we are also individually sharing this data as well, right? It's tracking our sleep cycles. So are we, you know, and this isn't really a question, it's more rhetorical, but like in this in this space of data collection, are we setting ourselves up to um, kind of be read before we arrive in a way? Do you know without what I mean? Without a doubt. Yes, without a doubt. And I think this is the, for me, one of the biggest concerns about how we use biometric data is that are we using it to help us or harm us? And Mm -hmm. for me, the bigger question is who has access and control of that information? So we're having a conversation talking about sports. So most professional athletic teams have troves of, of, of information and data about their athletes. But when you get traded or when you move to another team, that information does not go with you. They maintain it, possess it. So, right, when LeBron goes to, if he goes back to Cleveland, Los Angeles is not going to say, oh, yeah, yeah, LeBron, you can have that data information go with you. No, no, no. They hold on to that information because it's key information that they need to know about the athletic performances. And so this is a wrinkle in the whole story of athletes athletes and biodata is that you – as athletes move around and switch teams, teams know your weaknesses and your strengths. So if they know that you are weak in the, the, the first three minutes of the third quarter, that's key information. And they're not going to give that away. They hold that information. And, and so it's, it's really amazing if you think about the Premier League and soccer, say, in the in, uh, in England, where across the, the globe, where it's kind of the leading edge of, of acquiring biometric data. So oftentimes teams have seven to 10 data analysts watching the game and individual athlete performances. So yeah, if you watch elite level soccer and you wonder why some team keeps attacking down the left side, it's no accident. <laughs> yeah, they usually just watch the tapes back in the day. Uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, it's it's lifetime data analysis. Yeah, I mean, I won't I won't speculate into what that future looks like, but essentially, it sounds like. I mean, it feels like athletes, in some way, are kind of just like. This is going to, please, nobody kill me for this, but like, just pull back 30,000 feet for me. But like, athletes feel like Uber drivers, essentially, where their, their bodies, their presence in a space is really actually just a data collection, right? A collection of data about performance 
and elitism and data that is not, you know, not even maybe available to them at all times, but they are being siphoned into some kind of central location to then be either sold, used, leveraged by some other entity. And Uber is kind of doing the same, right? Like Uber is actually not even paying their drivers. The drivers are actually part of a massive research project that they are not being compensated for, right? Which, you know, which way do I turn? Which, you know, how do I, how, how do I navigate space, um, you know, in this vehicle? And all of that information is being siphoned up, right, into um, an amorphous cloud, which is really a data collection center somewhere in a developing country. Um and that is the valuable information, actually. That yeah. is the valuable information. That is the information that, you know, governments use, that states use, that, you know, corporations use in order to, you know, manipulate outcomes, right? Like Cambridge Analytica and, you know, yeah. Facebook. Anyway, but that's what it kind of makes me think, right? Not, and, and, and it's a way in which the spectacle serves as an overlay or a distraction from what is actually happening behind the scenes, right? As far as like data collection is concerned. I don't know. Have you thought, am I I crazy? No, no, you're right on point. And I think for me and the kind of think about like racial justice perspective, if you think about the, the, data from elite level athletes being often the most valuable and you choose mm-hmm. your major level sports across the United States, at least in potentially the world it's black and Brown folks. Mm. And mm. those people do not have control of that information. You know, I, I mm. magic is like we live in a world right now, but, but the most valuable thing about you is potentially not your, your mind or your spirit or your body, it's your data. It's information and how you share information. And if we're pulling that biometric data from black athletes and black bodies, it continues the historical tradition of using blackness and black bodies to gain capital value off of and and not return it to them, not allow them to participate in the process of capital accumulation through information about their bodies. And right, it's all it's all presented as being benign. Oh, well, this is just helping you be a better athlete. Oh, it's just helping you do better. But but no, it's always presented, it's always reconstituted as as a form of capital. And black people are cut out of the 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 process of capitalist accumulation. It's giving very Henrietta Lacks. Um, for those of you not familiar, <laughs> Henrietta Lacks was a was a woman um, who has a really special quality. Had a special quality of her cells, cells uh, where they infinitely reproduce, and her cells, unbeknownst to her, without her permission, uh, I think maybe since the fifties or maybe sixties, uh, has been used by the scientific community to, you know experiment on, solve diseases, things like that. So many of the things that we even benefit from are all really due to the um, cells of a Black woman that were taken from her without her knowledge and without her permission. Um, But in thinking about sport, you know, so much we've been speaking about um, up until this point is technology in relationship to the body. But what about technology in relationship to you know, surveillance um, within the sport. So 
and thinking about kind of AI and the way in which AI is being used. Let's t- let's let's use baseball as an example. So, baseball, America's favorite pastime, right? It's one of the first professional sports to be integrated, and in many ways, it represents where the U.S. was as a country. Um, of the professional sports, it's considered to be one of the old school ones, right? Leather gloves, there's the ball. Seems very simple, but as of late, they've started to roll out robot umpire systems, right? And so these robot umpire systems are computer-aided systems that allows for the tracking of baseball, of tracking of baseballs to determine, you know, strikes, balls. And it started with minor league baseball leagues. And I think the commissioner of major league baseball said it could soon be coming to the majors. Um, And you shared that, though this seems simple, there are complexities in this. So, how does the rump robot umpire system work? Like, what are its capabilities? <clears throat> so I think it's, it uses very, I wouldn't say simple, but very familiar radar technology that's basically tracking uh, a sphere of the baseball through space. And within the stadiums, they have different systems, but pretty much they have uh, a tracking system that's Built, constructed in the stadium, and it allows you the system to determine how fast the ball is going, when it's crossing the plate, and whether it's a ball or strike. And so, what is happening in certain minor leagues is saying that, well, we would like to get rid of bad calls because people are inherently infallible and they get caught up in the moment, and umpires and officials and referees make mistakes. So, what happens if we allow a computer aided system? to determine what a ball and a strike is. But of course, that changes the whole context of what baseball is. Mm. Because when we think about baseball, are umpires just officiating the game and maintaining order? Are they part of the game? And so the question is, do we want our human and very fallible games turned into regimented digital driven experiences so but i think the bigger question is when we ask these technologies we're asking them to produce a level of accuracy and and purity that often is very difficult because if you look at the major league baseball's definition of where the strike zone is it's roughly somewhere in the armpit and somewhere above the knee. And when we have computational tools, somewhere above the armpit and somewhere above the knee is, is a lot of space where we can talk about millimeter and smaller distances of determining accuracy. And so the question is, um, when we're having those kind of levels of accuracy, where is the strike zone in the context of baseball? Is the front of the plate? Is the back of the plate? Is it vertically or differentially? And w- we believe that these technologies can provide a level of accuracy, which they can. But if the rules don't define that accuracy, then what is the technology doing? It's just offloading the responsibility of determining weak and inaccurate rules to a computer and device that allows us to believe that we're getting better 
judgments within sport and competitions when actually we're getting the same bad judgment, just having it being done by a computer. <laughs> and it's, it, it makes me think of a couple of things. One, this, uh, this forward move towards predictability Right there, see, it, which I think, and underneath predictability is control. Yes, you know, and there is, and so what does it mean to, you know, and and to be honest, like this control is a through line that really, um, that really weaves itself through, <clears throat> through and from colonial rule. Right, the needs yeah, of yeah. categorization, control, predictability. It shows up in you know cadastral maps of you know um, you know uh, forestry, German forestry, all of these things. So this is another way in which predictability and control is like entering the 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 sport. What? How? How does that shift the lived experience of sporting? Yeah, I think. Part of what I love about sport is its randomness, its its lack of predictability. Uh, and what I think myself and others are drawn to are great athletic feats when bodies do something that doesn't make sense. So 1968, Bob Beeman jumps longer than any other human being in the long jump at the Olympic Games nearly two feet longer than the existing world record. It stands for a few decades. And what's magical about that, it was his first jump at the Olympic Games, and he never jumped anything really close to that jump, that that distance again. And I don't know. His body put it together for this one moment when it counted, where people were watching. And then uh, after that, it's like, well, okay, you know, I had my moment. And where other athletes can produce it again and again and again. And that's really great. But um, I, I love the, the random infallibility of, of athletics, right? We are watching a lot of college basketball right now. It's NCAA basketball tournament. Uh, you see great athletic performances and you see people who should make shots, make shots. And you see people who should miss shots, miss shots. And right that's all about the emotional relationship of the game. And I think when we start thinking about athletic performances are disassociated from just human life, then Mm -hmm. it takes Mm -hmm. away the, the humanity of athletics. And, and sometimes we think about great athletes as being incredibly robotic because they're able to produce great performances time and time game after game but i think we miss the reality of that is that we we narrate their great performances <laughs> and you know athletes like michael jordan were able to win several championships but he still missed a hell of a lot of shots and he made lots of mistakes and he just happened to be in an environment where he succeeded and oftentimes our desire to create heroic champions outstrips the reality of their athletic performances. No, no, mm. no disrespect to people like Michael Jordan. He's a great athlete, but of course 
it wasn't him and him alone that allowed them to win and succeed. Yeah. I, it, and it, you know, even in thinking about, you know, the role of technology in, in sports and you, you, you know, you're talking about this robot umpire one, it makes me feel like, okay, what role or, or what, what is the, what is the relationality between a robot umpire and like an AI judge in sentencing, you know, judicial sentencing, because AI is now being used, you know, in judicial sentencing as well. And so like, where, like, what are we moving towards and what is, what is that relationship to the black body? Yeah. No, I, I think when you're you're talking about the relationship between robotic umpires and AI judges, I think it it's pulls up and reveals some of the larger questions about how we want to live our future. Mm-hmm. And how oftentimes the idea of computational tools, whether it be an AI or a robot umpire or official, is giving us a true clear and most effective judgment of what's going on Mm -hmm. and and oftentimes we have to realize that the information put into say the ai and or the the referee or umpire is only as good as as information goes into it so right if you're going to use information about black um, incarceration or arrests in the South from prior to, say, 1975, and I'm, I'm being generous there, <laughs> I, I don't want to be judged by that AI judge. And if I'm, if I'm a black man, if I'm a white man, I'm pretty happy with that AI judge <laughs> from pre-75. But at that moment, right, it's kind of messed up. And so I think this is the part where, where the idea is that, no, no, this AI will give us a better analysis. But if so much of the data of our world has been racialized and racist, all of the assessments or statements or outcomes of the AI are going to be inherently racist. So I'm not really excited about the potential of AI predicting my, my life. And right, you know, you know your, your, your work is pointing out all the different ways in which AI and information and technology has kind of messed up with race. You know, <laughs> when we, we, we look at um, voice, voice or face or name recognition systems that can't see a black face, doesn't understand a black dialect or doesn't understand or sees a, a, a black name or perceived to be black name, and all of a sudden that becomes a, a way of delineating race, criminality, difference. And that's inherently messed up. And so part of the idea is like, so how do we get better data? Mm-hmm. And I think this is the problem. It's like, you know, I, I sit in a place right now where I'm interested in getting better demographic data about the people that submit to um, pro proposals to the National Science Foundation. But I as one, when someone asks me to input my demographic data, I pause. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because how is my 
demographic is my demographic data going to be used for me or against me yeah 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 actually and that's really a a good segue to talk about this work at the National Science Foundation um so you are currently i mean outside of right you know being a professor at Purdue and you know all of the wonderful things that you are, you're now the director of the National Science Foundation's Social and Economic Sciences Division. What does that mean? (laughs) (laughs) That's a good question. I'm still figuring out what that means. So what what that means in practice is the National Science Foundation is a, a government institution that is roughly a $10 billion organization that uh, funds uh, basic or fundamental science. And within that big organization, there's a a division that I lead that's called the Division of Social and Economic Sciences. And it's the leading funding agency and leading funder of social science within the United States. We award over $100 million annually to researchers to do fundamental basic research on um, social and economic science issues. So we fund graduate students, faculty members, uh, researchers to develop the new level of work within the social and economic sciences. And in my role, I help lead and set the agenda of the things we would like to fund and set priorities of the direction we would like to move in and creating new avenues for research. So I think that's generally what it, what it is at the, at the best days. And, and when we're speaking about social sciences, we're talking about things that focus on human behavior, social, you know, social organizations, how socioeconomic, you know, political, cultural, you know, forces affect the lives you know, yes. of our daily kind of lived experience. Um, yes. What, what, or could you highlight some of the programs um, <clears throat> that you are, you know, are funding, are very much interested um, in pushing forward, right? You know, being being a Black man in a space like this, I would assume that provides a lens into um or I should say an expansive lens into what actually really needs this type of attention. So I think part of one of the main things I'm really interested in is diversifying the portfolio of researchers, institutions that receive support from the National Science Foundation. Mm -hmm. As you can imagine, there are large, well-endowed, well-funded research institutions and universities that have robust and very structured offices that help faculty members, researchers, and scholars write grants and get awards from the National Science Foundation. On the other spectrum, you can imagine, there are other colleges, universities, and scholars that don't have the robust infrastructure, don't have mainstream tradition of receiving funds from the National Science Foundation. And oftentimes the assumption is that you're at big, well-funded research institution. You are a much better scholar, researcher than the other person at a smaller, less well-funded institution. But of course, the, the data is shown that that's 
probably far from the truth. It just happens mm. that you may be at one institution versus the other. And where people end up in their their professional research careers, uh, at least from the things we fund, is very similar to the way people end up in all other different careers. Uh, you know, not everyone ends up in their dream city. Not everyone lives in the places they 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 fantasize about living. People move around mm. due to family, um, personal beliefs, all kinds of things. And so the idea is, how do we do a better job at supporting? researchers underrepresented in the research infrastructure. So what does it mean to think deeply about HBCUs, minority-serving institutions, less-funded, well-funded research institutions where faculty members are teaching heavy loads? How do we do a better job of supporting researchers that want to fund, that we want to fund and do studies on folks who are interested in diversity um, equity and, and difference. So we're very interested in changing and augmenting the landscape of what gets funded. So um, in the, the division I run in the broader spectrum of the National Science Foundation, we have programs with titles of Build and Broaden, um, and we're starting this new initiative that's titled Crisis, looking at um, race, difference, and in the environment. And trying to understand how we can build out research on the other parts of the um, American landscape that often gets cut out of research funding and not brought into the traditional research question. So just trying to open up the conversation to bring different groups of people to the table to do research. Mm, and what are... You know, how how can, you know, one who's interested in even finding out more, find out more about being, you know, like what, what are those traditional barriers that have kept black and brown people out of conversations um, and spaces of access to funds like this? Yeah, so I think the, the biggest one is tradition and apprenticeship. So oftentimes, mm. the ways people are brought into understanding the pathways of the National Science Foundation or large government research grants is by someone who tells them, this is what you need to do. These are the people <laughs> you need to know. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, I was brought into that process by my graduate dissertation advisor, who right, is a white man who, who told me, these are the places where you can look for funding. And... If you don't have someone telling you that, uh, oftentimes some of the networks of understanding how to apply for and navigate the, the government bureaucracy is difficult. I'll be the first to admit mm. that if you would go to the National Science Foundation website and try to figure out how to submit a grant, it is not easy. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I'm sure you know very well. It's like they're, they're saying, yes. oh, there are these opportunities. And the opportunities come with a laundry list of uh, of barriers mm -hmm, and loopholes mm -hmm, and right mm -hmm. hands and left hand turns. And there's a, you just need someone to help you navigate that. So I think one of the things I always tell people is that uh, 
please reach out to me, send me an email, contact me and let me, if, if I can help you, I can help you because oftentimes it's hard to understand how to navigate the process. And Mm. I feel like I'm in a position enough to, to at least know who you should talk to. I may not Mm -hmm. have the answer for folks, but um, yeah, please, if anyone wants to reach out to me, um, I'm easy to find on the National Science Foundation website. Please hit me up, shoot me an email. I will do my best because I'm really interested in in helping Black folks and people of color and difference get, get funds to do the research that's necessary to change the landscape of the world in which we live. I mean, the world's changing greatly. And mm-hmm. uh, oftentimes, we, if we don't have relevant research, it's very difficult to enter into certain policy conversations. Mm. And so mm. when we have a lot of language that's floating around places like the National Science Foundation and government, government around evidence-based policymaking, if there aren't researchers producing relevant and and coherent and meaningful evidence about people of color and difference, then we're not even in the game. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. not to use a sporting metaphor, but it's, <laughs> it's important to, to, no. to, to get, a, get folks connected. Yeah, and speaking of being in the game, hold on one second. The I am inside uh, technology I, myself, and I've been sitting here, and the lights have gone out because of it, you know climate change and energy efficiency. So mm-hmm. give me two seconds to move yeah, around yeah. so that the lights come back on, so they know there's a human being in here. Speaking of being inside the matrix, um, <laughs> so you know, and first of all, and Ravon, thank you so much for you know even sharing that. Um, so for those of you all listening who are interested in applying for funds at the National Science Foundation, we will put that information in the show notes for you. Hopefully, this podcast also can be that place, be that. Uh, audio mentor where you can find out about all of the ways in which you can make your dreams come true. Um, But thinking more about um, kind of science, technology, um, and invention, you actually also wrote a book about Black inventors. Um, Did. Namely, um, you know, Granville T. Woods, you know, the likes of Lewis Latimer. Like, first of all, why this book? Ah, that's a good question. And I think, why this book? So, books, like many things, have convoluted stories. And uh, the story of this book was that um, a, a woman I was dating while I was in graduate school, her grandmother gave me an article from the New York Amsterdam News. And it was during Black History Month and it had a list of pieces of patent numbers, object names, and some other things about Black inventors. And I remember the underlying narrative of it. And I don't know the, remember the specifics, but 
there's one example of an ice cream scoop. And the implication was that if a black person had not received a patent for an ice cream scoop, we would not be able to experience the wonderful pleasures of ice cream. And I remember thinking, okay, that's a bit of overreach. I'm excited that black people are receiving patents, but you know, I grew up in a house where we didn't have an ice cream scoop, and we ate a lot of ice cream. So the, the connection didn't add up to me. So then I began thinking about and trying to understand Black inventors. And part of it was that when I looked at these Black in- inventor lists that you see every Black History Month, I don't know anything about these people. So it ends up being really mm. flat, really two-dimensional. A name or potentially image and a patent number. And that's supposed to all of a sudden stand in as these people being black race champions. And I was like, well, I just want to know who these people are, what, what their lived experience were. And so that began a, a process of writing a dissertation, then eventually a book on black inventors and trying to understand. I mean, I say I, I wanted to give them some three dimensionality. I wanted to flesh out who they were as human beings, because if we're going to say that these people were race champions, race heroes, well, maybe we should give them their due or not give them their due, but we just need to understand what it, what, what it means and how their stories can potentially change the landscape of what we think about inventive work can be. Mm. And so the three inventors that you kind of zeroed in and then double tapped on, um, you know, Granville T. Woods, Louis H. Latimer, and Shelby J. Davidson. And we will put a link to um, those three gentlemen in the show notes. But, you know, of the three, I mean, Louis Latimer, we speak a lot about Louis Latimer um, and his role uh, with Edison. And I think there's some kind of juicy tidbits in that relationship that we can circle back on. But Granville T. Woods uh, was kind of known as the Black Edison. Talk to us a little bit about Granville and why you chose him as as an entry point for this story. Yeah, and I think the the three inventors I chose, I think that, for me, they are really representative of, I would say, three versions of Black life. that are very familiar to three versions of black life at this moment. And so what's interesting about Woods is that, ah, I would say he was the hardest working in the best and the worst sense. Um, I like Granville Woods because, no, I, I would say he just is a, he's an old school hustler, <laughs> meaning that he would, had this vision, a grand vision of electric electricity and electric locomotion that at the time he invented this idea, it was very innovative, really amazing. But being a black man, he had the struggle mm-hmm. and he questioned, he, he oftentimes would obfuscate his racial background, saying his grandmother was a Malaysian um, there's very little information about him being black or of African heritage. So his brownness, blackness is gray and fuzzy, and he liked it that way. Um, and right when he needed to be black, he was very black. When he didn't need to be black, he was maybe something else. And what I like about 
Woods is that he was one of the few people that understood how to get the business done. And if it got messy and dirty, like often most business does get, he's willing to go there. And so in some of the documents, it's not um, one of my favorite stories about um, uh, one of the patent examiner, patent um, solicitors who he was working with, sort of, um, stole one of his patent drawings and they got the fight. They just, they got, they boxed it out and he took the drawings and rolled. So that's pretty bold stuff for a black person in Ohio in the late 19th century. Mm, uh, mm-hmm. You have to have a little bit of swagger about yourself if you're going to get in the fight with a white guy. Because, you know, the, the, the reality is that we're very treacherous. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but he understood, like, he was trying to do whatever it would take to um, succeed. Um, and unfortunately, that person he ended up getting into a fight with is a guy named James Zerby. Um, they got caught up in legal battle for 15, maybe slightly less than 20 years. And Woods finally won the, the right to the patents. But by that time, the moment had passed. You know, and I, as, I, as I explained to people, it would be similar to getting involved in uh, uh, an argument about word processors. And, and then 20 years later, people aren't using word processors anymore. It's Google Docs. And you're like, that's really great that you have this, this driven word processing tool, but it's past the moment. You know, there, there, there is a word from the Lord in that example <laughs> about <laughs> really choosing your battles because you exactly. may win it, but it may not, by the time you win, it may not even be worth it. Like you, yeah. you could have advanced so much further and here you are fighting about something that's literally completely obsolete for both you, the I person guess. and the world. Um, yeah. You know, but, but Granville, you know, you're right. Granville was, was, was that brother because one he, you know, worked on, you know, induction telegraph, sold it to Alexander Graham Bell, right? This is a story many people don't talk about. And if I'm not mistaken, didn't he go toe-to-toe with Edison over some, over some so, stuff and won? So, so I think there's some, some messy complications about that. Um, so what was part of Ooh. what was happening, yeah, is that... Um, a lot of his ideas were being bought and sold. Um, mm. So part of what was happening at that time was um, General Electric, which was a part of the Edison Empire, and Westinghouse were trying to buy up all the industry. So they're buying a lot of patents and just suppressing them. So they had lots of capital. And they were buying things and putting things in the side. But, but Woods did have some run-ins with lots of other folks. Um, he, you know, one of his ideas was partially bought by some of the Edison companies, had complications with Graham Bell. So, I mean, the part is we have to remember, like, it's, it's a very, very messy industry. So I, I consider him similar, you know, using Silicon Valley examples, right? Uh, Facebook is what it is. And I think there's a lot of people that got stepped on 
and got into the mix. And so I think Woods was one of those people uh, and he tried to succeed, but you know, what he would talk about is he had a lot of invention that he called pot boilers. So he had a lot of good ideas and mm-hmm. that if he needed some money, he would just come up with an idea and sell it off. So he was just, he was always hustling, always moving, always making stuff happen. Um, still to this day, one of the most prolific black patenters ever. So fascinating guy. And, and then let's let's slide over to Lewis Latimer because they're in a way they're I wouldn't necessarily say related, but they are two brothers who are working in one both well Granville specifically kind of rail rail transportation yeah. um, and also technology and then Latimer specifically around um, incandescent lighting um, patent draftsman you know. I think the kind of general understanding, or at least, you know, here we go. Let's debunk this myth, right? Thomas Edison didn't invent the light bulb. That was Louis Latimer (laughs) who invented the light bulb, and Edison stole it from Louis Latimer. How how right am I there? uh, Unfortunately, you're you're very far from the truth. 5%. (laughs) Five <laughs> percent. You know, I, I I want that I wanted that story to be true. I yeah. trust me, I wanted that story to be true, but it was not. Uh, I think the part what's interesting is that when you get into it, Latimer was involved with Edison. So what what makes Latimer, from my perspective, really interesting and way more interesting than the i the idea of someone he invented a light bulb that someone stole that Edison stole it from, is that. You have to realize at the time, there were multiple light bulbs. There wasn't Mm -hmm. just one light bulb. There were several people in the incandescent business. So so think about, I don't know, choose your your expanding marketplace. It was a technology that was new and really exciting. And everyone was trying to make one and make it work. So there there were lots of light bulbs. And Latimer had a couple drawings for a light bulb. He never actually received a patent for a light bulb. But some of the things that he did that were really amazing is he received a patent for the light bulb filament. So old school light bulbs, they had this carbon filament that heats up and uh, is able to produce light. And Latimer received a patent for at the time, which is the most innovative and forward-thinking filament. And a process for producing it quickly and efficiently, and it could be shaped into letters, all kinds of things. So he did invent and design a really piece of cutting-edge technology at the time. Um, and so it was for uh, Edison competitor, Hiram Maxim, and that was really amazing and, and uh, innovative. And so he went to England, helped set up light, light bulb manufacturing companies, struggled, came back. and he had such a high level skill set. He bumped around between every second, third, fourth, and fifth level um, light manufacturer in the United States and on the East Coast. So he knew everyone. He knew a lot. So the connection for me with him and Edison is that when Edison receives a lot of support from um, J.P. Morgan and other financiers to really push forward electrification. 
Latimer gets brought into their like four member legal team. <laughs> and, and basically he is their legal attack dog whenever they go into court. So he's in court saying, when everyone's saying they have precedence of this light bulb, he comes in and says, no, actually, I work for that company. I know this person. He didn't do this. This person did this. I mean, even down the level saying, no, no, that lamp was blown by this guy. He's just blowing people up left and right in court. And so the reason we think of Edison as the inventor of a light bulb is that Louis Latimer was the guy in court shutting everyone down, making sure Latimer was killing his competition. Or so Edison, making sure I, Edison was, yeah. I, I'm sorry, Edison was killing his competition. Yeah, and so yeah, yeah. I feel that's way more important than inventing a light bulb. He is part of the legal team that instead created the history and tradition and narrative of Edison. So I'm fascinated by that. and. I think that's, for me, I don't know if it's a better story than he created a light bulb and Edison stole it from him, then he ends up becoming one of the key members of the legal team that gets us the Edison narrative and the Edison light bulb. And he did very well for himself, too. Uh, well, you know, I, I, I think that it's, um, you know, obviously it's, 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 much, it's very interesting, but as you tell the story... I can't help but think of how and why Lewis Latimer wasn't able to go into business himself. You yeah. Know? I, I, I think this is the interesting part about it. It's like, I don't think Latimer was all that interested in going to business for himself. Mm. And I think... He understood, and I, this is again my opinion and reading a lot of his papers and documents. I think he understood the financial realities of the time and that mm. he saw enough people fail trying to make their way in the electric lamp business that he felt he found a place where he could succeed financially and otherwise and, and make a large contribution. I, I think. It was it was just a tough road to hoe for a, a black person in the late nineteenth century, and I, I would say Latimer was different than say Granville Woods. I think Granville was all in entrepreneur. I'm going to make this happen. I'm the man. I don't think Latimer was that guy. Latimer was like, I think I'm doing a good job contributing to this infrastructure. I'm going to make a good amount of money participate in this activity and do my thing. Mm. And so kind of thinking of this, this kind of road we've taken today from ooh, sports, the technology, uh, the national science foundation, right? So, so the genesis of, of creation and invention supporting those, um, to kind of this historic look back at um, Black creativity, um, even if, and kind of often to, you know, in service to, right, um, a, more, a more powerful entity. How, how, did, how did Ray Vaughn get interested 
in any of this. We started with a dedication to a mother who was a big reason that all of this even came to be. What is, how, why are you here? Yeah, yeah so that's <laughs> How'd a good you get question. Here? Why, why am I here? Uh, I, I was raised always believing I was going to be a physician. And mm-hmm. I remember being in college and taking some classes, chemistry, biology. I was always kind of interested in science, but I didn't know if I wanted to be a physician. And I remember being in an upper-level chemistry class. And I remember on the exam, I think I probably got, it was around 30%. It was organic chemistry class. And, and with a curve, I think that was a B plus. I just remember thinking, okay, I know a third of the stuff on this exam. And I'm getting the B plus. There's something wrong with this whole picture here. I don't know this. I don't know it. <laughs> and, and so at that moment, I started asking these questions about what I want to do. And I started asking around and I became more interested in the way we got to the science and the way we think we know what we know much more mm. than being a person who is just regurgitating what we know. So those mm. questions were way more interesting. So from how do we get to what we think about as chemistry? How do we get to our understanding of what black is? Uh, how do we get to our existing political structure? So I became way more interested in understanding in a sense, of creation of our society. And I think I was interested in how the technology and science shaped our society. But um, there are all kinds of things that are really fascinating to me. Um, so some of the things that really got me moving in direction was reading about color, right? Mid-19th century, a huge business was creating new color. So, you know... There's a reason why a lot of those pictures look fairly drab. I mean, it's hard to produce color um, systematically. So you need a lot of natural materials. So flowers, but when you can produce them synthetically in a, in a lab, when you can produce synthetic indigo, synthetic magenta, all of a sudden people's style changes, all the things change. And it's just fascinating for me. It was like, wow, you have these chemists who are going, you know, I'm trying to figure out a way to dye clothes because I want to look fly. I want to look hot. I'm creating a whole, I want to participate in the fashion industry. So I'm just intrigued with how something as simple as organic chemistry creates the whole landscape of fashion. So those mm. seemingly unorthodox connections were really interesting to me. And so those questions are way more exciting than a lot of other things. And, and, but also uh, I'm, I'm also interested, interested in the, the, the ways in which blackness and innovation has been problematically connected. Um, and part of what the piece that was always very interesting about black inventors is that really until the twenties or thirties, it was invention was seen as a God given attribute. 
So inventors were not created, they're born. So mm. Thomas Edison, Henry Ford, people reason people valorize them is that they had a God-given ability to do this stuff that no one else could. And what did it mean for black folks to invent? It just messed with that whole narrative. Because if you believe that black people were inferior and there's this God-given magical ability called invention, and then black people had it, how do you square that with all the racism and all the difference? It doesn't add up. So I was, I was, I love the idea of the radical intervention into racial ideology that just mere fact of patenting had. So that was pretty exciting to me as well. <laughs> That's amazing. And you, you also were an athlete as well, right? Yes, yes. So I was an elite level cyclist. Uh, I competed in the 1992 Olympic trials. Um, as as I would like to tell people, the the phrase I always say. I was good enough to know how far from the top I was. <laughs> I, a ca- casual Olympic trial mention at the end. Oh, it's totally fine. Um, you know, Rayvon, and actually when you were speaking about, um, you know, this idea of organic chemistry, well, first of all, I didn't realize that you were such a fashion buff, so that's news. Um, and, the, and And that's not shade. Um, but you know, I love this idea of the ways in which technology, you know, influences maybe unforeseen outcomes, right? So you know, even this idea of like the creation of color um, in the nineteen uh, in the nineteenth century, one particularly indigo, it actually also shifted the economy of the United States and the lives of Black folk. And many people don't realize that actually indigo dye or indigo bricks were actually more valuable um, in the genesis of this country than cotton and tobacco. So much so that indigo bricks were traded as currency because the American economy was so new um, that the value of indigo bricks that were created um, in plantations in the South uh, was actually traded as currency. Also, one of the most destructive to the human body. Um, and there were states, I think Georgia, if I'm not mistaken, um, became a slave state because the farmers wanted to be able to grow indigo and use slaves to do it because it was so valuable and profitable. So that. Just a little double tap on the invention of color yeah. in the late 19th uh, century and the ways that it has affected, you know, not only fashion, um, but the lives of Black folk. Um, Rivan, brother, this has been such an incredible conversation. I feel like there's a lot here and this is a really good time uh, to to wind it down. Um, but before we do, I just want to, one, thank you uh, for hopping on and sharing this information. Um, but then two, like acknowledge the incredible work that you've put out into the world, um, the incredible thought, um, the ways in which you've used, you know, science, technology, and your own, you know, scholarship to to bring a realistic lens onto the world uh, that we see. And then not only that, but be at the front lines of ensuring that the next generation has the tools and resources that they need in order to shift the landscape of scientific 
invention, you know, innovation and ingenuity. And so for me, that's an incredible arc of influence um, that you've created for yourself. And I just want to acknowledge that because it's really amazing. So, so thank you. Well, no, thank you. It's been a pleasure. And thanks for those kind and generous words. Uh, it's been an honor to be here with the Udario and the IBI and all the things you're doing. Uh, it's, it's again, yeah, honored to be part of the, the activity that you have going on. Um, a pleasure. Ah, thank you. So, brother, our last question. Um, having everything that you needed, what is the world you imagine for the future? That's a weighty question. Imagine the world for the future. So I can follow back on the, the pessimist, but I'm, I'm deeply optimistic. I'm, I'm incredibly optimistic. Uh, and the world that I imagine for the future is one in which Black folks will become technological agents in the construction of what that narrative is. And, and part of what my excitement is, is that with the explosion of AI and new technologies, what the exciting currency is no longer going to be knowledge, it's going to be creativity. And so as we move from knowledge in that ability to spit back information, computational tools are going to do it way better than anyone else. But Black people and their ability to bob, weave, move, and think creatively, see if creatively and create new culture and create new technology, um, we can see it, right? Jazz, hip-hop, fashion, sneakers. I mean, it's so, so prolific, like, popular culture of the moment is black culture. And there'll be a moment where we won't continue to be able to extract it from black people, black lives, black experience, black bodies, black people are going to own that shit. And, <laughs> and the world's going to change. So that's my, my vision and narrative and hope for the future. Well, brother, that sounds like a world that I want to live in. And I'm so glad we didn't record this on a Sunday with these these words you're out here spitting up. I do think that's the, the magic is like, you know, I, I think I'm excited about the future because creative artistry and innovative thinking is going to rule the day. Mm. Mm. And, and I think Black people have always had an inside line on creativity. I mean, I would drop the mic, but I don't want to hurt anybody's ears. <laughs> so <laughs> on that note, brother, this is it. Um, where can people connect with you? Um, you know, if they want to reach out to you, like I said, we'll put your information in the show notes, but I don't know if you are on Twitter, social, website, 
Yeah, so I, I keep a very, very, very low social profile because um, I, I feel like I have too many commitments already. So, but um, the easiest place to contact me is at my NSF email, R-F-O-U-C-H-E at NSF.gov. That will connect you directly to me. Um, and I'll try my best to get back to people uh, most effectively. Um, so, yeah, I've, my website is available as well. So search me, Rayvon Fouché. Um, not a particularly common name. So usually I come up pretty quickly. So, yeah, if you need to reach out to me, want to ask me any questions, um, um, I'm always willing to help and connect people. So please reach out. Brother, you are a gem. So generous. Thank you. And by the way, that's Fouché, uh, F-O-U-C-H, with a little accent on the E. Um, Brother, have a beautiful, beautiful afternoon. And thank you so much again for joining us here at the Institute of Black Imagination. Great. Thank you. It's been a wonderful pleasure. Thank you. The future currency will no longer be knowledge, but creativity. Mm, I love that. What were some of your thoughts about today's episode? Make sure to share with us over on Instagram and Twitter. And don't forget to tag us at Black Imagination. If you love what you heard, go ahead and leave us a review over on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's truly a pleasure to read what y'all have to say. And be sure to check out this conversation and others at blackimagination.com. And you can now watch other episodes on our new YouTube channel, the Institute of Black Imagination. Artificial intelligence shows us that the next stage of human evolution will not be defined by what you know, but by what you can imagine. Stay curious and keep dreaming.